Well, it's wonderful to see you again on this Wednesday evening, and I thank you so much for, I guess we should say, tuning in. Uh, we are looking at Psalm 74, uh, another one of these Psalms of Asaph. And again, if you've been keeping up with all of this, the context is the Babylonian invasion, all of the confusion, uh, taking the brightest and the best to exile back to Babylon. That would include Daniel. And then the destruction of the temple. And remember, the Jews uh, of the tribe of Judah and in the nation of Judah had kind of put all their money in the fact that uh, God would never allow the temple to be destroyed. I mean, after all, that's his house. Who wants their house destroyed? And so the Lord sent them a message basically telling them, I don't live in your house. I am the God of the heavens, the God of the universe. And um, so don't put your uh, feelings of well-being in a place or in a building or in some ritual that you do. It's a good message for us because sometimes we uh, tend to look at the things that God has given us or the things that God has blessed instead of looking to the God uh, who has blessed all of those things or provided those things. As you've heard people say, sometimes we're more interested in the blessing than we are the blesser. We're more interested in the gift than we are the giver. And that's kind of where the Jews found themselves <clears throat> in all of this. And in previous verses in this psalm, Asaph has described just a, a horrifying scene. When you think about the temple, you would think about the glory of God, the honor of God, the sacrifices, and as we know from the New Testament standpoint, all of the pictures that the sacrifice would give that point to the Lord Jesus Christ. We would think of a place of, of peace and the place where a loving God would display His grace and mercy to His children, to His people, to the ones with whom He had made a covenant. And yet Asaph excuse me, describes a scene of chaos and confusion and destruction. The temple had been burned. There's blasphemy taking place. Gentiles have marched through the Holy of Holies and the uh, sanctuary in there. And they've taken things out. They've looted the temple, we might say. And then he talked about the signs that were there. Uh, probably military banners that were uh, glorifying pagan deities uh, in a place where Jehovah God should have been worshipped and honored. He's just uh, bewildered by all of this. How could God let this happen? And last time we noticed his questions when he basically said, God, why aren't you working and why aren't you doing something about all of this? Well, you and I, because we have the Bible and we can read everything that is said, we know the answer. God had uh, warned his people over and over and over and over about their idolatries. And he had warned them of coming and impending doom if they did not repent and if they did not turn from their wickedness. And prophet after prophet after prophet was proclaiming that to them. And, of course, they rejected it and then the inevitable came. Well, uh, you and I, with that perspective, we can kind of say to Asaph, just, you know, pay attention. Think about this, brother. Uh, but he didn't have everything that we have, and he probably didn't understand everything that we would understand about all of this. In the midst of this, though, in Psalm 74, 
when we began reading in uh, verse uh, 12, he changes. And in the New King James Version, I don't really like the very first word because after he asks all those questions, then he says, for God is my king from of old. I think the uh, ESV and the NIV and a whole bunch of others translate it a little bit better. They say this, yet God is my king or but God is my king. I think that gets the uh, idea a whole lot better than New King James does. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the destruction, in the midst of devastation, in all of the confusion and bewilderment, Asaph then comes to a statement of faith saying, yet God is my king, or but God is my king, from of old. Working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Kind of weird, isn't it? You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. And you have prepared the light and the sun. You have set the borders of the earth. And you have made summer and winter. Okay, my first reaction to some of that was, yeah, I can get that. Other parts of it, I went, what? Because it is, uh, Hebrew poetry is kind of strange. It's nothing like our poetry. You notice nothing rhymes. They don't worry about that. And you can't really set it into a meter like we do uh, in our poetry. It's, it's much, much different. And he's using words that are very descriptive that uh, the people back then would have understood. We look at it and go, what are you talking about? Well, before we get into the text, uh, we're titling this message, Some Things Never Change. Now, in Asaph's world, nearly everything had changed. And I say nearly because he mentions some things in these verses that uh, go on every single day, in our day as well as in their day. So some things never change. Now I want to uh, introduce this by talking about the providence of God. We've all heard that. We use that, and as people who believe strongly in the sovereignty of God, we talk about God and His providence, God providing. It comes from um, two Latin words, well, they're put together, uh, actually, one is, I guess, more of a prefix. But it has the idea of seeing ahead, being able to look ahead into the future so that God can provide for our needs because he knows what they already are. And it also means he sees ahead everything that's going to take place. And uh, the providence of God has two aspects to it. Uh, theologians talk about God's governance how he uh, works and governs everything to fulfill his purposes, raises up nations, throws down nations, raises up kings and other leaders, empires, and they, they are built, they're fallen, those type of things. God governs those things. And then also in providence is the idea of God preserving his creation. 
God preserving his creation. He keeps everything like it needs to be so that life is sustained for the time period that God has ordained. One day this earth is going to be gone. We know that. First Peter tells us that. But until then, God has given us everything we need to sustain life and for him to govern over what takes place so that at the end his prophecies are fulfilled and his purpose is fulfilled. In the book of Isaiah, there's a, a verse that makes reference to what Asaph was talking about. Isaiah 14.22 says, For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon uh, the name and the remnant. And you can read the rest of those and study that for yourself. But notice he addresses Isaiah telling him, I will cut off Babylon, their name and their remnant. There's no Babylonian empire anymore. There are still some people that are descendants of these folks, but the empire is no more. It's uh, modern-day Iraq, by the way. And skipping on down to verse 24, it says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. God just has to think it. And whatever God thinks, whatever God plans, whatever God purposes, he says, surely it will come to pass. There's nothing left uh, up that's going to uh, be, uh, maybe it will, maybe it won't, or perhaps it will, or I hope it will. And God's not sitting on the throne with his uh, fingers crossed, by the way. Okay, let's look at uh, some unchanging things here. First of all, in verse 12, he talks about the unchanging king. It's not like that you have any kind of um, uh, process for succession in heaven on the throne of God because there will never be another king. Uh, God will never be deposed. God will never be replaced. God is never going to die. God is never going to um, have to have a uh, successor. This is the king that Asaph says, and as he actually names it, he said, this is my king from of old. So notice the personal part of all of this. He said, this is my king, my king. Asaph is a member of the covenant people of God, and Asaph is recognizing that in spite of all of the horrible circumstances they're under, he recognizes the fact that an unchanging God has made a covenant to Israel, to the people of God, to the Jews, and he is not going to back away from all of that. He is still their king. And so in contrast to all of the confusion, all of the devastation, and even his questions about where God is and what God is doing and why God is not operating now and doing what he promised to do, he still affirms the fact that this is the unchanging king. God is my king from of old. This is an everlasting covenant. This is an everlasting God. And Asaph did not make him the king, and Israel did not make him king. He has always been the king. That's the unchanging king. Now, we need to remember that because we may have a new president in a few months, or elected anyway, a president-elect, and we don't know uh, if that's going to be Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Uh, apparently, at this point, it looks like it's between the two of them. I suppose things could change um, 
Sometimes people die in the middle of campaigns uh, through assassination or illness or something like that. Uh, Who knows? Maybe the Democrat Party comes to their convention and they say, we don't want this guy, and they nominate and... uh, you know, bring someone else to be the candidate. We have no idea when it's all said and done. We think we do. That's why they call it the presumptive nominee and all of that. Uh, We don't know exactly what's going to happen. We may know what we want to happen and uh, what we pray would happen, but we don't really know. And there have been a lot of changes in uh, presidencies and Uh, Sometimes even in different nations, we know from history, sometimes actual governments change. Uh, All of these kind of things are not really in our hands. But here's one thing Asaph was saying, and I think it settled his heart. No matter who the president may be, no matter who the conqueror may be in his case, there is one thing that remains. God is, has been, and is and always will be the king, the unchanging king. And Asaph is affirming that. If you get that, it will settle your heart at least to some degree. It's a good start anyway. There are some things that terrify us. There are things that, that uh, cause us to be concerned and worried and anxious. But knowing that God is our king causes us to at least breathe a sigh of relief, doesn't it? And it does for Asaph. But he mentions some other things too. And he talks about the unchanging purpose of God. God is not looking at the polls and trying to figure out what he needs to do. God is not trying to win the vote. God is not after any kind of a popularity contest. And God never questions himself. He never has any self-doubt. He never has any reason to look back and say, why did I do that? Or if I'd only known or anything like that at all. There's an unchanging purpose that God has here. Notice that it says, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Now that struck me, in the midst of the earth. Because the earth as Asaph looks at it is not a happy place. It's not a pleasant place. It's not a good place. It's not an orderly place. It's not a peaceful place. Look back up several verses. And what he uh, describes there is very noisy and chaotic and all of that. And yet God, in the midst of those things, Asaph says, is working salvation. Because God doesn't need to go someplace else to make things work. And God is not in the midst of of saying, I need to get away and I need to get to a quiet place. He is working right here, right now, and in our midst. That means wherever you go and whatever the situation may be, you always run into God. God is governing, as we said before, over the affairs of earth. And he is preserving his creation. So salvation. That is what God is talking about. Now, did Asaph understand salvation in quite the same way that we do? Well, the Old Testament word for salvation in the Hebrew, it not only means the kind of thing like we might say, well, I got saved because I prayed a sinner's prayer and God saved me. Uh, Asaph would say, well, salvation to them was actually God coming and delivering his people out of an evil or a destructive Uh, situation. And you know what? We forget that sometimes. 
When God saved you, it's not just that he is going to take you to heaven or just that he has forgiven your sins. And I don't mean to minimize it by saying just. It also means he has taken you out of the jaws of defeat, the jaws of hell, and placed you into his kingdom. That's why Paul says he's translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He literally snatched us out of the fires of hell and brought us into the joys of knowing God, present tense, of being the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing thing to think about, to know that he walks with us and he blesses us and he uh, is the one who is actually guiding us through our lives. The steps of the righteous are ordered of God. That's what salvation is, this deliverance from horrible destruction to know that we are in his kingdom walking with him because, of course, we have been forgiven and our sins paid for by the blood of the Lamb. That's the purpose of God. It has never, ever been derailed or knocked off track. He is right on time with doing all of those things that Isaiah said that he just has to do with a thought. As he has thought it, so it shall be. So that's the unchanging purpose. Okay, let's get to the weird stuff. Verse 13. And this is what I call the unchanging power. Now, whether we understand these verses or not, and the descriptions that Asaph is given, let's not get so bogged down in all of the details that we miss his point. We're pretty good sometimes at reading Scripture, and sometimes we're not detailed enough, and then other times we get so bogged down into things that we don't know, we miss what we do know. Now, out of all of this and out of these strange descriptions that he gives, there are some different theologians with different interpretations of these verses. We'll look at a couple of those. But there's one thing we dare not miss. Whatever this is describing, it's describing the absolute power of God. Let's talk about God's unchanging power. God is not weaker today than he was at creation. Neither is he more powerful because that's not necessary. You can't get any more powerful than God is. He has not lost his power. He has not forgotten his power. And uh, it is still here. And that's the point that is made in these verses. But what are we to make of these things about you broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters? What in the world? You broke the heads of leviathan in pieces how about this next phrase you gave him his food to the people inhabiting the wilderness what in the world what are we to make of all of this well some people believe that this is symbolic language and it's uh, kind of uh, well they built it on that phrase you divided the sea and for a lot of people self-included when I think of dividing the sea, I automatically go to the Red Sea. Now, if that's the case, and some people do, then they take this description as being symbolic uh, of what the Lord did at the Red Sea. For example, you can read, some people will say that the, the serpents, some translations say sea monsters actually, uh, that that's the Egyptian soldiers. And God broke their heads off and they were drowned in the Red Sea. That the Leviathan, this great monster, is uh, actually a symbol of Pharaoh. Well, that kind of makes sense. I, I could give you a little bit there. The part that sort of uh, trips me up 
is it says, you broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces, okay? But then it says, and gave him as food to people inhabiting the wilderness. That just doesn't make sense at all with this interpretation. They go on to say that uh, fountain and the flood, that's water from the rock in the wilderness, and then um, drying up mighty rivers, they say that's the crossing of the Jordan, okay? And... Um, I'm not sure. Spurgeon uh, is one who actually believed that. I hate to go against uh, our good friend Charles Spurgeon, but um, he says, meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness uh, may not uh, be the exact meaning that even as the sea monsters washed upon the shore nourish food for the inhabitants of the Red Sea, even so the symbolic dragon power of Egypt when destroyed at the Red Sea, became food for Israel's faith and even furnished provision for their wilderness journey by the spoil which was cast upon the tide. Okay? Um, that's way too allegorical for me. I don't believe that that's a good and proper way to interpret the Scripture. It leaves far too many things open for a lot of speculation and that type of thing. I believe we're to take the Bible as literally as we possibly can. Now, there are times when the Bible does speak allegorically and it does speak symbolically, but generally it makes it clear when it is doing so. Um, not sure that's the case here. So I uh, was also reading some things that uh, John MacArthur wrote and surprisingly enough, John MacArthur disagrees with Spurgeon as well. And uh, he's a big fan of Spurgeon as I am, maybe even more so. And he takes this back to creation. I think this is a better understanding. That when you look at the words and the phrases that are used here, I think they fit better. Dividing the seas. How did he do that? By separating the continents. Those kind of things. Uh, think about the serpents in this translation, New King James. The ESV actually says sea monsters. Well, whales, sharks, all of those kind of things uh, would certainly work there. Uh, Leviathan, we don't know exactly. You can read in the book of Job where there's more of a description of him. Well, there could have been some dinosaur-type creature that was uh, in the sea that was destroyed there. And uh, then when it says that the destruction of these animals, when they washed up on the shore, that they fed people in the wilderness, that would make a little bit more sense. I could see that happening. Um, Eskimos, for example, whenever whales would wash up on the shore, they would uh, be very quick to take them and uh, make use of the whale for food and um, everything else that they did. Uh, think about the fountain and the flood. The Bible says that when Noah's universal flood took place, that the fountains of the deep were opened up. That's part of uh, where the water came. It wasn't just from rain, just from 40 days of rain. It was also the fountains of the deep opened up. And then when it says he dried up mighty rivers, well, you can uh, watch nearly any um, nature program on the desert and hear somebody say where they're walking in that sand, this is a dried ancient riverbed. And as God rerouted things and as the continents shifted and all of those kind of things that would happen in the flood, certainly waters were dried up. At any rate, let's just boil it down to this. I don't think anybody knows 
absolutely for sure, except um, God and Asaph, what he was speaking of here. So let's just uh, say that's interesting. We can speculate a little bit about what he might have been talking about, but don't miss the point. Even if the world around you is falling apart, it's chaotic, it's been destroyed, and life as you know it is, doesn't exist anymore, Asaph may have been looking for a new normal, kind of like we talk about. And uh, yet there's one thing that's unchanging, and what is that? That is the power of God. So that's number three. Number four, let's think about the unchanging decrees of God. Because uh, God, uh, well, Asaph, pardon me, speaks of God in verse 16. The day is yours. Now, is that just an age? Is that just an era? Is that just a time period? You know, we talk about that. Uh, the, in the day of so-and-so, in the day of this or that. Well, he kind of clears it up because he says, the night also is yours. So I would take that to mean, again, the day and the night, taking it literally there. I think that's uh, why both things are mentioned. And he says, you have prepared the light and the sun. That gives further strength to my argument. Verse 17, you have set all the borders of the earth. We'll talk about that. And then he goes back to this literal thing. You have made the summer and winter. These are not just saying, you know, the seasons of the soul or of life. Some people say that, you know, when you're born, you're in the springtime of life and on and on. I'm probably in the fall or the autumn of life heading toward the winter of life maybe. But that's not what he's speaking of here. He's, he's giving us some very literal things here and I think that uh, we'll be wrong if we don't interpret these literally. So what in the world would Asaph be saying here? I think that he is telling us here, the, referring again, and this is why I think that previous section refers, is that uh, in creation, God created and separated the day from the night. And Asaph is saying that not even Nebuchadnezzar could change that. Now, Nebuchadnezzar could change a lot. He changed the landscape, right? He changed the temple from a beautiful building and a place of worship and a place of peace, uh, all of that to a place of chaos and destruction and into a mountain of rubble, didn't he? But he can't change the day or night. He can't change the seasons. He can't change any of those things. Those were fixed by God. In creation, God created and separated day from night, and not even the powerful, mighty Nebuchadnezzar can change anything like that. I think he's also reminding us that whatever may change in our life, whatever our age may be, whatever the state of our health, whatever the state of our finances, whatever the state of the government, whatever the state of the uh, city that we live in or even the um, uh, houses of worship that we love so much, whatever, whatever may happen on those, there's still one thing that is true, that this is our God who continues to have the sun rise in the east every morning and set in the west every night. It still provides light. Plants still grow. There's still a planting season. There's a growing season. There's a harvest season. All of that, none of that ever changes. And whatever you're talking about with the borders of the earth, I don't think he's actually talking about national borders, but not so fast. He could be. But I think um, he's talking here specifically more about the, uh, the borders of the earth, where the seas are, 
where the different regions of the earth are, tropics and uh, deserts and the arctics and all of those kind of things. They're set by God. But it could mean that nations and even their borders, even their empires are set up uh, by God and also taken down by God. In Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 it says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. I think in Daniel's case, when he talks about the times and the seasons, he is talking in a kind of a symbolic manner. Um, Where Asaph, I think he's being actually literal here. Because when Asaph mentions uh, these seasons here, he actually talks about um, summer. You have made summer and winter. I think that's exactly what he means by that. Summer is the growing season and winter is the season of dormancy and rest. God made them. And the Babylonian invasion and the exile there did not change any of that. Now it's going to be 70 years before the nation of Israel is going to return home. It's going to be longer than that before they rebuild the temple. In fact, several of the minor prophets are uh, kind of chastising Israel because you've rebuilt your homes, but you haven't rebuilt the temple. Uh, That's going to happen sometime, but not for a long time. And when Asaph is writing this, here's the thing we need to understand. Some people are not going to live to see the promises of God. There are going to be people there. Well, if the exile lasts 70 years, well, what if you're 80 whenever Nebuchadnezzar uh, burns down the temple? You're probably not going to see, I pretty well bet, you're not going to see the uh, return of the remnant and you're not going to see the rebuilding of the temple. Now, if you're three or four or five, maybe ten, Uh, something like that, there's a good chance you might see it. But not everybody is going to see it. Because when God promises something, the promise is always true. But the timing is in his hands, not ours. In fact, the book of Hebrews says in the 11th chapter that many people received the promise of God, but they didn't live to inherit the promise of God. And that may be true for you and me as well. There may be some, th- some things that we are anticipating God doing and we're praying for God to do, even the return of Christ, right? And yet the Lord may say to us, I will do all of that, but not now. And there's kind of a not now situation in this. Why isn't God moving? Why isn't God fulfilling his covenant? Well, he is and he will, just not now. And... So Asaph, as he writes about all of this, he's reminding us that when we look at all of the things that change, let's think about the things that don't change. The bottom line, on November 3rd, 2020, either Joe Biden or Donald Trump will win the election. Some will be happy, some will be devastated. And you know what? On November 4th, the sun will rise just like always. It will rise at the appointed time, The seasons will change, babies will be born, old people will die. Politics cannot change God or what he has decreed. Does that make sense? And so when we think about all of these things that change all around us, this fast-changing world that we don't understand, let's remember there is an unchanging king, that there is an unchanging purpose that there is an unchanging power that still exists and is still working
for all of us and that we also remember that there is uh, an unchanging, where'd my last uh, thing go? Right here, the unchanging decrees. That's the word I was trying to think of. So rest in the Lord, folks. And as we think about things, we're very sad right now at the passing of our missionary brother, Robert Taylor. And uh, he's with the Lord now. That's a big change, big change. And yet the sun still comes up, the seasons still change, and God's purpose is undeterred. George W. Truitt was the pastor at First Baptist Dallas, Texas for many years. And he made the statement, God buries the workman, but the work goes on. Well, in light of all of that, what's going to happen in Mexico? What's going to happen to the work there? I don't know, but I know God knows. I don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 years with us, but God knows. And that's what Asaph is saying. Take a deep breath. Settle down and rest in the Lord. There's a lot that people can change. But on the big things, there's so much that they cannot touch. It is in the hand of God. You're safe in the hand of God. You can rest in the hand of God. Let Him take care of all of that. He's got it under control. And that's the message for the evening. I hope that blesses you and I hope that refreshes you and I hope that helps you also to refocus during these troubled times. God bless you. I love you. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for being here this past Sunday. We had a great group and we'll look forward to seeing you this next Sunday as well. Thank you.